The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS experience. Three, two, one, and we're live. The QTS experience, live-ish. Live-ish, yeah. Well, uh, end of the year, man. Yeah, it's been it's been a ride. It's been been two years since we've been doing it, and uh, maybe a little over two years. But this year, this been, year is the first like really full time. I mean, COVID, yeah. we sort of picked it up in June-ish or whenever, something like that. Just kind of figuring it out, and then um, this year, twenty twenty one, diving all in. Yeah, and for those of you who don't know, Dave probably mentioned it in the intro. I'm uh, I'm the producer, so I'm I'm one of the ones that uh, uh, helps make the show happen. So I edit the, uh, the the videos in the back end and and uh, do all the graphics and things like that. So um, uh, I mean, dude, this is this has been a really fun year for conversations. Um, I know I've been enjoying it quite a bit. You, you know, I was thinking about this as we were sitting down trying to to talk about. Um, like what we're going to be doing for the, the, the year in review. And, you know, we, we got to talk about the pandemic, like you were just mentioning. And, mm-hmm. and it made me think of um, Mark Hoffmeyer, oh, yeah. you know, and, and you had him come in here and, you, and, and he was talking about. Um, He's been in here a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, the, the last time he was in here, you, you mm-hmm. guys were talking about kind of the impacts of COVID. And you know, pe- people kind of forget like impact this, of COVID on the film movies mm-hmm, on yeah. the film industry, and and, and uh, people kind of forget, you know, like though though everyone was shut down, so was like our entertainment industry, and like right then is the time when people need the entertainment the most because they're literally locked in place, right? You know, well they were they were running through the back catalog of either shows they meant to get to or just produce stuff. You know, because there's a there's a lag between production and presentation, but it was the the catalog was running out pretty quick, and a lot of things that had been um, were still in the making part, not post production, right? They're still uh, filming, right? Pre production and 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 actual the the production process, yeah. And and we talked to him about, um, you know, what's that? What's that look like? I, I actually heard this idea from Rami Katrib, who's with Digital Film Tree, and this is pre-COVID, so mm-hmm. it's fascinating. I heard him in uh, speaking in Hawaii. I hope to have him on as a guest someday. Brilliant guy. Uh, I learned later that they're part of the uh, Ted Lasso uh, production. I believe I love that. that show. I love that show. It's pretty. Pretty saucy language, but um, other than that, very British, but um, great show. But anyway, he started this idea that I think you're referring to that Mark really completed and expanded upon, which was doing this idea of uh, moving data, uh, Rami was talking about, and how people that wanted to do production at home in the way that artists have home music studios and things like that, that they wanted to do this. And then, and then COVID hit. And so one of the things that Mark um, talked about was, so what does that look like? What does that look like from yeah. security? What does that look like from the tools that are available to you? What does that do? How does that work in collaboration? Because usually you're sort of real-time collaboration and yeah. how do you know all this other stuff and control these things. And that's just the, uh, that's just the, I've got a finished product to edit. Right. And, and and you know, one of the reasons why it was so salient for me was because I was kind of 
though I'm not in Hollywood. What? I, I know, right? Um, but I had to live a very similar kind of life, right? Where I'm having to rack my brain on how to create videos for for our our organization and, and how to produce our, our podcasts and things like that from my basement. And and like how how are we supposed to keep it secure, moving the data back and forth? And it, so it was all very poignant uh, of a conversation. And um, I think one of the coolest things, you know, he was running through just all the safety protocols that they had to go through, right. like all the hoops they had to jump through to really make these productions still go because they still needed a paycheck. Right. You know, and because yeah. not, not everyone that's working on these things are, are super wealthy. A lot yeah. of them are just working class folks who need who need a paycheck day to day. And. You know, the Tom Cruise, I think it was Tom Cruise thing had happened where he had chewed out some mm-hmm. staffers. Mark, I believe, if I remember correctly, it's been a year, so my yeah. brain's trying to, you know, as we're, first of all, the sun sets at like three in the afternoon now, <laughs> yeah. so I'm I'm in hibernation mode. But he was, look, if, if, if the people who insure these things or the states uh, or governing agencies that we operate within the municipality Paladies <clears throat> believe we're not following the rules and we have to shut this production down. Tom Cruise is not going to suffer right. materially, right? Or the stars or whatever. But 99% of the people on that set, other than the dozen or so actors or actresses, um, are. Yeah. And it is a sick, and they had already been out of work for some period of time. Yeah. And, and, and you could, you could hear in his, in, in the, I remember that particular. Uh, clip that that it went viral for a while yeah. and you can hear in in tom cruise's voice how upset he was not because like you said that it would affect him in any way but he knew the ramifications that if this show got shut down right everybody that that he is employing mm-hmm. to make these films will lose their jobs right and and he's like, it, it, you have to, you have to follow these rules, right? You have to do it. And right. and I'm with I'm with Mark. Uh, Mark said he was completely within his right to to yell at the, the, yeah. at the folks. And I agree, I agree, man. And hey, if you if you're if you're lucky enough to be able to keep your job, and do and do work uh, while the pandemic was going on, follow follow your company's rules, right. man. Right. You know. So, but hey, you know that's enough about us talking about. It. We should yeah. probably have them uh, listen to to a clip of it. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Uh, the other part of that question from all that time ago that I said it was, <laughs> what do you think the impact is going to be? You know, people were already moving movie making production out of the traditional places in the United States. It was California. Mm-hmm. One, the talent was there, too. It has such a variety of landscapes, but it's much more restrictive, at least as of this taping, to operate a business in California because of COVID restrictions there. And in other parts of the United States and other parts of the country, it's less restrictive. Mm-hmm. They still have restrictions, but it's much less restrictive. How, how much do you, I mean, people were already, Georgia was already, if not the biggest movie producer in the country, certainly on the rise. Um, we even saw that from election. A lot of, you know, a lot of people in Georgia were surprised that so many people voted differently than we how we traditionally vote because it's an influence of so many other people yeah. from around the country. It's a fantastic place to live. Um, do you think that the, this last year um, and the restrictions that are imposed in some of the Western states or in other places, that that's going to just accelerate the move of 
production and and talent out of those places into other places? Absolutely. And like, look at New York right now, New York City. Mm. You can't really shoot there. I mean, you can, but it's going to be a lot. I mean, you have millions of people packed in there, so right. it's really tough. You come down here to Georgia, uh, right now at Pinewood. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever been down there at Pinewood mm-hmm. at Fayetteville. Mm-mm. Beautiful. I've drank a lot of, been bored on a lot of the sets <laughs> on there. I joked, but yeah, you drink yeah. a lot of coffee and right. then you run around with it. Right. But it's it's out there. Right. Uh, they've they've created towns like for people to live. There's like apartment complexes with various restaurants. They're trying to really build it up in that area. Right. But it's more, it's more secluded. <clears throat> it's more uh, not as much out there. Right. So I think it probably is easier to film. Right. Out there, you can go to Pinewood. You can put your crew of 100 people in around the apartments, hotels in the area, put them in the bubble, bust them to Pinewood, right. shoot, come back. You, it's, it's a lot easier, I think, than L.A. and the, the right. commuting and the different studios and where, where are you going to put all these people. So yeah, I think so. And especially now with, you know, I, with the way the, the vote happened in mm-hmm. Georgia, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think that'll make a lot of people want to come back in because there were issues about pulling out of Georgia for certain right. rules and laws. Right. Uh, I, I think... I think it's we have the studio system. We don't have warehouses that right. if you drop a wrench, you have to cut the take because you right. heard it. We have beautiful studios, right. so I think it's continued to grow. And we have mountains, right? right? You can go up to Hiawassee, up in the mountains, up there, small right. town. We have little areas that look like uh, Nebraska, like the small right. town that. So I think we have a lot to offer as well. Right. So just keep building. I think it's going to accelerate. I, I agree. I think whether they come to Georgia or they go to wherever they go. I just think that, um, you know, if, I, if I'm responsible for, I mean, whether it's a big budget or a small budget, I'm, I'm responsible for this production. And I'm concerned that the government, the state government, is, is, um, is, less, is more likely to stop and impose a restriction here in the interest of their citizens. Mm-hmm. I'm not criticizing that. I just mean that if I've, I've got a financial stake in this thing, and that county, that state, that area is is more reluctant to interfere um, in terms of a closure than this place. It's going to shift. I mean, we've seen that throughout, you know, certainly our nation's history, mm-hmm. and it feels very restrictive in the traditional filming areas today. Not to mention the costs and you know of production in these areas, very expensive places. And it's just going to facilitate whether it's Georgia or Texas or Arkansas or a number of these other locations where that production is shifting to. And I think it's just going to accelerate at times 100. Uh, you were talking about earlier, you know, some of the ways they're getting these blockbusters done is they take them even to other countries. Yeah. It's less expensive. That just blows my mind to load up a group of people and take them to another country to or less restrictive to, and, and accomplish their goal than to do it here. Well, you know what works is, so in Georgia, when when we were shooting, you could bring in 5,000 people for a scene. Right. Because you only had to pay them probably 56 or eight hours of work. $56, eight hours. You go into nine, it goes a little more, 10, 10, blah, blah, blah. But if you shoot in New York, you have the unions. You have, uh, these people are SAG. Right. Uh, You go to LA, these extras get paid more. Right. But that movie, this is really random, but Blade Mm 2, the Wesley Snipes movie directed by Guillermo del Toro, I think they went to Budapest. They paid their extras $18 in U.S. money, a, a cash a day, right. $18. Right. So you could have a scene of 500 people dancing because you're paying them $18 a day right. as opposed to 75 or 200 Right. So it makes sense to and go And in Budapest, there. they loved it. Yeah, they love – like Budapest is big now in movies. Um, really? 
uh, there's a movie I love that came out last year called Crawl. Mm. Beautiful crocodile film. It's made for $13 million, but it Wait went to... What does that mean, a crocodile act, oh, film? Oh, sorry, alligator film. So, okay, get this. Crawl. <laughs> a swimmer for the, the gators. She swims for UF. Okay. There's a hurricane coming. Her dad is stuck in a crawl space underneath his home in Florida. Right. She goes to rescue him, and he's surrounded by gators that got loose during this massive hurricane because there's an alligator farm. So it's the movie about the two of them surviving alligator attacks. Really good. Rotten Tomatoes, really positive. Beautiful. But they went to, I think, Romania and shot it for $13 million. But when you watch it, you're like, this is not a $13 million movie. Right. So, yeah, it's just, you know, but also what Hollywood needs to realize to, to survive is China. It's huge right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, Warcraft made three hundred million. Venom right. made three hundred million. Right. Japan, uh, let's see, like Avatar when that came out, it made one hundred fifty million dollars in Japan. Right. So, like, we need to think as as filmmakers now. They need to think in regards to China, Japan, uh, Italy, uh, South America, Brazil. If a movie hits in Brazil, it's a hit. A movie mm-hmm. hits in Mexico, it's a hit. Mm-hmm. So you got to think about Australia. Like, there's. So I think nowadays we really have to stop thinking. Filmmakers need to stop thinking so, like, it's America. Mm-hmm. And we need to think, oh, I can make $200 million in China. Right. So It's that, becoming that, a global audience. Exactly. And yeah. so I think that's another way that's going to have to survive. Okay, so that was pretty cool. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this. There's, I hate to pick out, but I'm going to. You know, what are the conversations I love? I'm trying to limit myself to three, but probably be four. In no particular order, um, one of the ones that was fascinating to me was uh, Professor Donald Sadaway at a MIT. Love that conversation. He, uh, I came across him in a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a, been a few years. And Professor Sadaway, the, the two big ideas that I'm most familiar with him on, one was creating a carbon-free, th- through the creation process, steel production. Like, how do you do that? And what is the economics of it? What's the scale of it? What's the production of it? How, how does that work? It would never have been possible once upon a time, but now it is. And, and here's the, um, here's the benefit. Here's the quality is, you know, here's the quality of the output. Here's the impact to the environment. It was really interesting, but why he came on the show, what we invited him to come on and talk about was the technology, the chemistry, and the material science around um, liquid metal batteries. And his big idea is this. You cannot have renewable energy if you do not have energy storage. Not, not of any consequence. Certainly not around solar or wind. Um, to a degree with hydro, yes. Um, but, but if you don't have the ability to store the energy when the grid needs it, not when the resource is producing it, so the sun or wind or whatever, then um, you you don't have anything, right? right. And you've got to be able to make it at, at grid level, so hundreds of megawatts, if not um, uh, more, thousands of megawatts. And it's got to be cheap. You cannot do more harm. This was a challenge this lab. Like mm-hmm. how do how are we going to make batteries that aren't bombs? They're safe. They're easy to operate. They're inexpensive. And they're of no consequence really to the environment. And he walked through, here's how you do that. And he tells these really cool, funny story on how he ended up with uh, one of the most famous technologists of our time as an angel investor 
in a it's a it's a funny story. It's very compelling, and it starts with him uh, teaching free online MIT chemistry classes. So I love that conversation. Why don't we cue up a little bit of that? Absolutely. When when I heard you speak about um, this idea of innovation, what does that mean to you? And could you tease that idea out a little bit for us? Well, I think um, there has to be a need. I, I look for uh, unmet needs. Mm. And uh, obviously, it has to be within my area of uh, technical expertise, mm -hmm. which uh, is, uh, I would classify as um, uh, extreme electrochemistry. Mm. And uh, I, uh, I really like the, the notion of uh, harnessing uh, electrochemical approaches because uh, I view the future as, uh, first of all, a, an electric future. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you think about everything that we value uh, that gives us our 21st century lifestyle, almost everything is predicated on the availability of electricity. Mm. So then if you add to that the concern about um, the CO2 and uh, the need to decarbonize our industries, decarbonize transportation, decarbonize agriculture, decarbonize mm -hmm. well, that means electrify to me because i can do everything almost everything that is done chemically i can do it electrochemically put the electron to work and then that means we install carbon-free generation of electricity and we're there mm -hmm. and so that's that's where i start and then i say okay well what are, what are the big ones and uh I've, I've looked at metal production, and we can talk about that. And mm -hmm. how I arrived at uh, molten oxide electrolysis for steel making. And, uh, and I looked at uh, uh, batteries, and batteries both in uh, mobile applications for transportation, mm -hmm. cars, electric vehicles, and certainly for the grid. Uh, you know, the way, the way the grid operates, it's people think it's like. Uh, like rain, you get bonus rain, you get extra water, you put it in a, in a water tower, it's, it's a bonus. Right. But that's not the way the grid operates. The grid operates such that uh, supply must be in perfect balance with demand everywhere at all times. Mm -hmm. When you generate electricity, it, it goes into the wires. And if the demand isn't there, the, the grid is turning into this giant capacitor. Mm -hmm. And then the next guy who plugs in, uh, instead of getting 110 volts at 60 hertz, you're getting 135 volts at 63 hertz and you blow your devices. Mm -hmm. Imagine if every time you went to plug in your device, the question you got to ask yourself is, do you feel lucky? <laughs> so, you know, so we have to balance and um, that that's where the grid level storage comes in and so i you know i took that on and because i know that when i'm done i'm going to have something that people want as opposed to just conceiving of cool stuff that well what's the purpose right yeah well we're going to come back and talk a lot about that and i love that i um uh that reference really works for me. You, you made this statement earlier or in another conversation that I loved, which was, um, 
one of the reasons why you love to invent, you were talking about kind of this idea of innovation that you love to invent is because sort of skipping some of the point parts of it, but I could, I can topple a dictator half a world away with the right invention. And you didn't mean it in terms of war. You meant it in terms of freeing human beings. Um, uh, you were talking about water electrification. We, we just had one of the lead folks um, around with World Vision and their project to build water wells and help bring water to human beings in parts of the world because it's such a horrific problem that a lot of us in the West, just unless we want to make ourselves aware, we're just not aware. And so we talked about that. And I loved your point, which was, look, you need electricity to do the water wells. So we want to join that effort. And in doing that, this is how we improve radically, immediately conditions for human beings in this way. So can you tease out that idea a little bit about inventing to topple and how electricity kind of back to modernity? Well, the, the, the dictator uh, comment was made in the context of uh, uh, what props dictators up. Um, and in many cases, it's uh, petroleum. Mm. And so if... If we invent uh, technology that moves away from dependence on uh, carbon, mm -hmm. uh, so carbon is no longer a fuel. Carbon becomes a, a feedstock. Mm -hmm. So we'll still have some petroleum, but we're going to use it as a feedstock for uh, petrochemicals, things like lubricants, um, and, and for uh, fabrics. I mean, polymers. All the polymers that we see, the plastic bags, the plastic wrap, the plastic housings on our appliances, that's all petroleum derived. Mm -hmm. So we'll still have that around. But then if, if the gigantic demand for petroleum collapses, the price of petroleum collapses and dictatorships collapse. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the connection. Um, and then on the other one, you asked about the, the, the water business. Mm -hmm. No question that that once we electrify, you go, you take a look at uh, an, an image of uh, the world at night, and it's a collage because the world is never all dark. Mm -hmm. You know, if it ever were, it's a really bad day. <laughs> That's right. okay, but so, but you can take these NASA images and and uh, paste them together, link mm -hmm. them up. And, and you'll see the way the world looks at night. And you'll see it's, you see the outline mm -hmm. of, of the, the continents. And uh, where you see light, you see the modern world. Mm -hmm. And where you don't see light is one of two conditions. Either nobody lives there or the place hasn't been electrified. Mm -hmm. And if it hasn't been electrified, there's no more precious gift we can give those people mm -hmm. than access to reliable electricity. Because with electricity... Then comes education, uh, water purification. So now you're moving away from just eking out an existence to participating in the modern world. You know, I have colleagues that are really big proponents of massively online courses. And they say, Don, don't you realize, you know, with this MOOC, you know, a, a poor child in, 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 in Africa gets access to, a, to an MIT lecture series. And I says, the kid doesn't have access to electricity, doesn't have access to the Internet. Right. You should be worried. 
getting him access to electricity, and then all the other stuff will fall into place. So obviously, you can see why this guy's just a rock star. That's, That's a great, great conversation. I love it, man. I love it. Yeah, and, and you know, he's you're you're, you're absolutely right. Um, well, he was absolutely right. In order to make renewable energy um, sustainable, I mean, like, look, when, when you're when you're when you're talking about the full conversation here. In order to make it sustainable, you need to have a way to store this energy. And and our batteries have have not been great in, in the long term. Well, know, they're too uh, expensive. Uh, Lithium yeah. ion, you know, there's so many rare earth materials in that. There's yeah. to make them large enough to deal with real scalable, yeah. massive capacity, and and then have it safe. You know, they can't catch on fire. They can't, you know. Whatever we we use lithium ion, I'm not yeah. opposed to it. Of course, yeah. But to, to but to build it at scale is his premise, and so I thought it was a really interesting conversation. And, and no, I, I agree. Everyone everyone should go back and, and listen to that one for sure. But you know what's an, another interesting take on this whole energy storage idea too um, was when you had uh, uh, Robert Piconi on, and you yeah. guys, you Energy guys, Vault, mm, Energy Vault, and you guys talked about um, using gravity. As a as a means of a, of acting as as a mechanical battery, and this was such a cool idea that I absolutely loved it. And so, uh, um, what it was was that they would make these these giant towers in the middle of cities and and in other places where where you would have renewable energy, uh, whether it be like solar or or water or anything like that. And uh, when the grid didn't had an over flow of energy it had, had too much energy it would go into these towers mm -hmm. and it would operate these cranes that would lift up these giant metal or uh, uh, concrete blocks or whatever it was the, yeah. a sustainable block right. uh, into the air suspend it there and and then when um the energy demand rises uh, in the evening when people are turning on lights and things like that it would slowly drop these blocks, which would produce kinetic energy, which would spin turbines, which would make it uh, electrical energy for people to then be able to use the uh, um, the renewable energy yeah. uh, without having to add it to any carbon footprint or anything like that. Right. And, and the fact that he was wanting to make all these weights and stuff like that uh, uh, very uh, e ecologically focused and, th and things, I, I thought it was a fantastic solution. And yeah. it was just a going through like the mechanical battery versus the metal battery, whatever. Right. I think they're all part of the same solution. It, it is, you know, they, they take this idea of pushed hydro. So this sounds very academic and uninteresting, but it's actually very cool. It's a easy listen to conversation, yeah. but pushed hydro. And they said, but not everybody has a big body of water around to where, and the idea, well, the conversation will explain what push hydro is. I'm not going to spoil that now, but anyway, the, to, to take that and how do we do it? Um, they don't use, uh, concrete because that creates a tremendous amount of waste and carbon. So they're like, look, here we got this concept of push hydro. How do we make it to your point in an um, environmentally friendly way that can serve urban area areas, areas, rural areas, um, suburb, whatever. And when there's an abundance of energy, whether it's fossil fuel energy, renewable energy, whatever, when the grid's producing more than it needs, instead of just uh, you know having it run off, we'll store it. And when it needs to draw upon it, um, we will release it, and it's caught up in this you know the energy stored in these big blocks. And how they go about doing it, they've since gone public. It's very interesting. It's got a lot of attention. We'll see if it if it 
if it takes off, but he's a very compelling speaker. It's a fantastic idea. And why don't we let people check out what he had to say? Absolutely. What's interesting is in the decade up to these conversations in my life anyway, where green energy became in my world in the data center business, something um, that wasn't just a casual conversation that happens sometimes. It wasn't a particular passion of mine. I, it just, it didn't come into my work uh, life very much. I didn't have much connection with it. Other things were capturing my imagination. As we began having a conversation about 10 years ago in my line of work regularly, our customers, many of our my customers are some of the largest buyers in the world. And probably, Robert, circa 2005, 2006, having a, a green energy uh, path was part of the conversation, but it wasn't really a requirement. It, it would be a tiebreaker. By, I don't know, 2012, it was, if you don't have, if you're not already engaged in procuring green energy in some way from the grid and, and not just buying credits, but, you know, how are you doing this? What's your plan? You were excluded from the conversation. And certainly by 2019, if you didn't have a, a real robust ESG report, executives in leadership positions around um, sustainability, not just with energy, with water, with efficiency, with all of these resources, social programs, like we still want to have a, we're not going to have a conversation uh, with you. And these are the largest buyers of and consumers of data on earth, whether they're com cloud computing or social media or e-commerce or, or whatever. And so um, the cool thing about that is most of these organizations this isn't lip service. This is some degree part of their culture. Some, in some, it's deeply entrenched. Their CEO. It's part of their founding um, core philosophy. I mean, they've got they've got to be responsible for their shareholders and their customers and their employees. But this is this is interwoven into their DNA, and so it affects. Shoot, it's affecting regulatory control. You know, regulated markets are being affected because these people are choosing who they're going into and not. But I never heard anybody in all of that time and through that whole journey talking a lot about storage. Because to do storage at the grid is hard. To do storage in a home is easier. I mean, we would do energy storage for, you know, your laptop's got energy storage. I've got UPSs and stuff for my home computers. But for my whole home, meh, a little bit. Probably the closest would be, you know, some kind of kinetic energy through a generator with a propane tank or something would be um, probably the closest to that. But real energy storage. So, so those were the so, so those were the things. But at the grid level, megawatts of capacity wasn't a regular conversation, and now it is. Now it's becoming part of a regular conversation. So, as you imagine, or as you evaluated rather the. Um, the renewable energy space and how do we how do you help facilitate whatever that time frame is a very short time frame a long time frame from traditional fossil fuel um, methodology to a renewable world that has to have storage how did you evaluate whether you wanted to get into the energy procurement or you wanted to or generation rather or the storage how what was that path like sure by the way it's, it's a great question and um let me start with where we were founded because that'll go back to the beginning. Okay. How did we really decide how we were going to solve this this problem? And 
Uh, we were founded out of Idea Lab uh, and founded by a guy named Bill Gross. Um, you know, uniquely, he just yesterday, so timing, um, Bill just announced his uh, public merger uh, now for IPO with a company called Heliogen, um, which focuses on solar-based uh, industrial energy. Um, mm. So taking the sun, basically, and leveraging that to drive industrial processes instead of fossil fuel um and and also even to make things like green hydrogen so could you imagine um, that conversation just to interrupt for a second you're sitting down with prospects so what's your big idea i'm gonna leverage the sun i want to hear more (laughs) (laughs) well you know the sun's great right because it is the single largest resource really that we have unfortunately it's not uniformly um existing in right. every part of the globe in the right way so right. and that gets into a, a lot of other things in transporting electricity however what what bill was doing and he had he'd worked for about 15 years david in renewables and uh and in heliostat technology so these are the mirrors that concentrate the sun and will focus it on a uh, on a receiver for example in what's called concentrated solar power or even just straight um pv panels uh, and he saw this issue of storage coming in as we, uh, I, I had known Bill for about 12 years before that. He had reached out to me uh, to run one of his earlier um, renewable companies, a company called eSolar. So we didn't stay in touch over the years. And he called me and he said, Rob, I have this great new idea for energy storage. I, I want you to come help me found it and lead it. Um, and, you know, you know the, the biggest issue, uh, which is why uh, you know, why hasn't energy storage or renewables been more predominant up until now? And it, it really comes down to, and you rightfully talked about the smaller applications where we have technologies that can fit that economically. But the, the problem with um, renewables, as we know, is intermittency. Mm-hmm. So it produces energy at the wrong time of day when you need it, mm-hmm. right? Sun in the middle of the day, but the consumption is really the early morning or the, the evening and wind typically at night. So um, that, that, energy storage the, the the if you need energy storage to make renewables replace other forms of fuel the, the fundamental issue is economic so this isn't very well known but the cost to make electrons is very cheap today so even let me start with fossil you know five to six cents we can have and you can burn coal anything and, and make things very cheaply um the cost to store those same electrons is a multiple of three to four times minimum so if you think about that equation, Dave, why hasn't, you know, why haven't we been deploying renewables earlier? It's to, to solve this economically, and then we'll get into environmental aspects as well. It, it's, it's a massive challenge. Mm-hmm. And, and today, 90% of all electrons are stored with, with pumped hydro, pumped hydroelectric dams. So these massive, uh, you know, pumped hydro dams. So, so back to your question on how, what did, how did we think about solving it? We looked at the world and said, um, and, you know, back in 2017 and said, look, this is a big problem and it's getting worse. So one, this urgency, what was fundamental for us, and you mentioned this, you remember this from our first discussion, that, hey, the, the time is now. Um, so that for us precluded certain technologies. We didn't want to invest in a 10-year roadmap in, in chemistry, for example, in, in battery chemistries. And there's plenty of money, I think, that's looking at that and, mm-hmm. and will help and improve and and. You know, lithium ions getting deployed now as a as a proven tech now to, to try to get the grid scale. Um, th- the other thing that was important to us was we weren't going to do anything to harm the environment. So it didn't make sense to us to solve in a green way this issues with renewables and have something that presented environmental liabilities. So and this was fundamental um, for us and and 
Um, and that's going to be something that, as we just announced this morning with NL Green Power, um, not only energy storage, but using decommissioned wind blades. So real circular economy, taking things that otherwise would have gone into to landfills um, or, or, or has to be burned, that we can utilize that in our energy storage. So the environmental aspect was important. We'll, we'll talk more about NL later. Um, and the other aspect, and this was the hardest one to solve, was the cost and the economics. Mm-hmm. So this is what what hadn't been solved and and where we spent most of the time before formalizing the company and the concept we wanted to get we wanted to get those economics solved and get to something that that would approach a cost where when you have a low cost wind and solar it's today one to two cents so much lower 75 percent lower than existing fossil fuel plants they're fully amortized okay mm-hmm. but how could you get storage down to three four five cents so that when you combine them you could economically replace fossil fuels for the first time. Mm-hmm. So that's what, for, for us, what that meant and where we focused was, we looked at pumped hydro, gravity energy storage then, and said, that, that's great. We, pumped hydro has, uses gravity, it's long duration, it's it's one of the most economical, still too expensive, um, but let's solve for the bad things about pumped hydro. You, you can't build them everywhere, they disrupt wildlife ecosystems because you have to build dams. They're still not as efficient as we would like. So you lose about 30% of the power in the process of storing it because you're pumping water back up, you know, to the top of the dam. So that's called round trip efficiency. So you want to have something that's ideally up above 80%, closer to where lithium ion batteries are um, and, and cost and and solve for that cost equation and and not hurt the environment. And and that's what we, that's what we did essentially in coming up with, um, a crane, a specialized crane to mirror the height of the that you need for gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of water, which doesn't exist everywhere, and in some places like in California, where I am, it's very expensive, mm-hmm. um, doesn't exist naturally in the desert in a lot of places. So could we come up with a composite weight uh, that wasn't concrete? Because again, concrete's not good for the environment, seven to eight percent of greenhouse gases. Come up with a way to make these composites environmentally and hit that cost point. And so that's, that's where we we focus to solve all those things in the equation, including ultra low cost, uh, high round trip efficiency, and environmentally something that, um, whether it be for the main components or minimizing transportation of materials, we can make everything locally. It, it's it, it's really fascinating that combination of innovation. So that so that's how we did it. And so. When you get a chance, I think people should go to their site and just see these things. You can find it on YouTube and on their website. Yeah, we'll have it in, in the description. See too, them in action. So, yeah, and um, very interesting. Yeah, I I just love that conversation. I thought it was really cool. Yeah. So for me, um, oh, there's a few more. Uh, one that I loved was um, Dr. Steve Andriel, who's over at uh, Villanova now among other places. Entrepreneur, started up many companies. He's a tenured professor, I think at George Mason and Drexel. He's now at Villanova. Um, And Steve, uh, he was a think tank guy at DARPA, the military science innovation lab uh, back in the 70s, I want to say. And he really spent a lot of time talking about how we have to completely rethink in the West, U.S. particularly, but in the West, how we're going to innovate, how the challenges that are coming today, and we, we had a couple guests on that talked about a similar theme, um, and I'm going to mention another one of them and one of my other things that I really like this year, but <clears throat> anyway, 
how systems have to innovate, how we, the idea of failing small is not going to work anymore. And that was really intriguing to me because that's, you know, certainly as I've been a leader and a professional, I mean, that, uh, an executive in IT, I, I want to fail small. I don't want to, you know, I want to, you know, how do we change this? Whether I'm promoting somebody into a new role, I don't want to, I want an, an exit set strategy that if it doesn't work, I don't lose their talent or their skill or whatever, or right. a product or service. <clears throat> so anyway, he, he teases that out, but he also spends time on talking about systemic risk, you know, real world threats to all of us um, in the area of cybersecurity, not just innovation. Um, and he's a funny guy and he's um very intelligent and he's he's really good at communicating why this is important and why we need to think about it and um also i love the insight he gives on you know his students talk a little bit about or he talks a little bit about what his students are really interested in and what they're focusing on the future so um for sure that's a fantastic conversation yeah let's let's cue it up all right it is you know, sometimes it's this weird juxtaposition. I, I served in the military. Um, I, I saw that, you know, the military, uh, I haven't worked for the federal government, but I've worked for a university. And in many ways, in the regular line units, in your regular day-to-day -day working for a public entity, it seems very structured. I wouldn't think this is a particular place of innovation. There's hard work, there's genius and execution, but you know, the military doesn't want you to go off, at least not airborne infantry, to, to do your own thing and really think outside the box. Um, other than, that's an oversimplification, you know, you're adjusting to a very tactical, immediate situation. And yet when I listen to you describe DARPA, or I think about it, read about it, it, it has to have almost like the skunk works mentality, this, yeah. uh, you know, kind of matrix. So when you think about it and you think about innovation, how, how is it that they're able to pull that off that completely different way of thinking of things? Well, that's the whole structure, right? So what's interesting about DARPA, I think the two and again, there's some similarity to VCs here. First of all, it's other people's money, right? So oh. you you have the advantage of being funded every year fairly generously by Congress, who's because of their reputation now will fund DARPA. They will mm -hmm. always fund DARPA um, because of its accomplishments. But I think one of the most important lessons for me was that, and I experienced this myself, the cost of failure is not high. Mm. So you're allowed to come up with crazy ideas, and the crazier the idea, almost, almost the better, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, they can't be completely right. crazy. I remember people in a waiting room wearing tinfoil hats. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it can't be kind of crazy, crazy stuff. On the other hand, I mean, they really want you to push. So the vision is important. So, right. you know, where will we be in 10, 20, 30, 40 years? Right. And if you come up with something that may be fundable, maybe not, but doesn't yield immediate results, it's okay. Right. And that's unlike companies, right? Where if you're running an internal innovation group, even CVC, corporate venture capital, mm -hmm. and your track record really sucks, good luck with that. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, you may get one or two of those massive failures, especially if they're expensive, and then you're out the door. Right. Um, at DARPA, that's not the case. If you were really pushing it hard and you made some, you know, some modest achievements and there was still some promise, keep going. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, just keep going. Do you have to defend your ideas? Of course. Mm-hmm. Is there a business case ar- around the idea? Of course. You have to pitch that to the, I used to think of it as upstairs, of course. Um, but it's not, it's not the same. You're mm-hmm. allowed to fail. When you think about innovation, before we dive into it, because I want to spend some, a lot of time, really, most of our time on this area, how, how would you define it? If you're, I know it seems self-evident, but I found that outside <clears throat> the techno, techno nerd world, that they're not really, sh- we're not always working on the same, from the same lexicon. So when you describe or you think of innovation, you wanted to describe it to somebody um, that doesn't think about it often, how would you describe innovation? So I describe innovation as being around the product or a service, mm-hmm. right? Um, I describe it, and that's, this is, I'm building a matrix now, product, service, right? Mm-hmm. Incremental, modernization, disruptive, mm-hmm. right? So are you disrupting a product or service or are you just incrementally improving it? Mm-hmm. And so DARPA is more about disruption mm-hmm. than anything else. Corporations, in my view, and based on research that we've conducted, even though they talk disruption, are much more about incremental and modernization-based yeah. innovation. Because again, the incentives are not aligned properly. And there's a whole series of issues around that, which we can discuss. Mm-hmm. But they're really more committed to incremental. They let risk is lower and all the rest of it than mm-hmm. disruptive. So when they talk about digital transformation, right, using you know various digital technologies to reinvent their business models. Most of them aren't really serious about that. They want the PR around it, but they're not willing to put the bucks, right, or the commitments to it. Right. And that's why many of these projects fail, by the way. And most of these projects do fail. The vast majority, some other research we've conducted, the overwhelming majority of technology projects, including innovation projects, I would argue, especially innovation projects, fail. So if you're living in that world, what the hell is going on? I mean, it's, it's, and there were good answers to that question. So you can see what I'm talking about, man. He's great. He's great. You know, um, I'm probably going to steal your thunder here a little bit. Don't you do it. I'm going to do it. So I think another person that you're talking about, at least in in terms of uh, one of the people you were, you were thinking about, um, about innovating systems. Um, This was, this was an interesting get for you. And I found this conversation absolutely fascinating and uh, it was really long. And I, I'm sure you have a lot to, to, to divulge in this, but uh, Colonel Heidi Hyden. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was going to be one of mine. You thunder stealer. I know. I, I took it. I'm sorry. But it was such a great conversation. And, and you know, he, he's an older gentleman, but he was around to help set up. What, he helped, he what, helped Santa set up the first Christmas, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Yeah, but but he you know he, he was uh, um, uh, he stole from DARPA to help make our 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 GPS protocols. <laughs> he did not steal from them. He he, he authorized certain things. <laughs> but uh, he uh, uh, but he he helped make our GPS protocols and uh, to start our whole internet era. I mean that it was such a cool conversation. So here's a guy. He gets um, you know no particular fanfare. He's from Oklahoma. He's he ends up uh, going to school. And uh, if I remember, yeah, he went to school, he was enlisted military, and somehow he got a presidential nomination to go to West Point. So that's a really interesting story. He's also a yo-yo champion. <laughs> I mean, so he's like 15 or something. Yeah, something like that. So he, go, so he goes on to West Point. That was a really interesting story uh, about what he did at West Point. Comes out, uh, ends up 
obviously in the military and the army and in this in the in the area of telecommunication mm-hmm. you know he he goes into great detail but he ends up getting sent to Spain to build out a telecommunications infrastructure to help prevent a coup and it's you're like what and you know he lists through his qualifications of which he had none but how the military you know said you're the guy and you're going to figure it you're out you're going to figure it out and yeah. and here's and here's how you're going to do it it was really funny and compelling and, and the success of that and then how he ended up back in the states and then um help the military and industry land on uh TCPIP as the as the infrastructure you know the protocols for the internet uh, as we know it today, and uh, also GPS and how, you know, which is used in basically everything, everything we do yeah. today, and how he was at those places and times. But then he moves from there to the private sector, and how he helped build the original largest internet organizations, part of the original largest IT purchases in routing infrastructure, and what all that looked like. He's a very humble guy. Um, but he just what what my uh, a buddy of mine used to call pioneer stock. You know, just mm-hmm. one of those people that's been around. He's got military sensibility. He's a great storyteller, and he has all of this experience of the early days of building out internet infrastructure. The military and university academia coming together to to put that together, and yeah, it's two hour and a half sessions. So. I don't know that you need to listen to them all unless you're painting the room in your house. Well, so um, we'll play a clip here in just a second. Yeah. But I do, uh, as somebody who sat through the whole thing, yeah. uh, as a as a, a third party listener, I do implore you to listen to at least most of it because it is it is extremely interesting, especially if you're it, it, any what somewhat interested in how the internet was created or GPS was created or or how technology advanced. Um, back in the day, I mean, like all of that is really cool. Not to mention, like you said, his cool, like military stories yeah. about just what a fascinating life this guy. Lived. And he's funny. Yeah, he's great. He's funny. He's great. It's funny. Um, but let's go ahead and play a clip of that. So you're now back to headquarters and, um, um you get to get involved. I hope right. in the next thing you want to talk about, which is, uh, essentially creating the world of what we now know as the internet. Uh, Yes. Okay, so I'm there, and uh, I'm uh, the chief of plans, planning. Mm. Remember, desktops has right. plans, so I'm right. chief of planning for all commuter, uh, uh, communications and computers. Okay. Uh, w- w- which is how many personnel all these units get or mm-hmm. anywhere, even though it's not might not be a unit or uh, – and if they need man, we're responsible for their manpower. Mm-hmm. They don't. If they need more manpower, it has to come through mm-hmm. us, and we have to prove. If they need more, more equipment, more money, that's all. If we mm-hmm. if we say no, the right. approval authority will. Right. You know, so it's, it's a big job. Right. And so mm-hmm. I looked at these. Uh, looked at my, uh, my staff, and I said, "Okay, so what are the problems here?" Mm. You know. New to the Army staff and all of that. And uh, they said, well, we don't really have many problems. And I said, what's the next thing that's going to happen? Uh, and they said, we're going to get plans in from the 5th Army, 3rd Army, from SyncPAC, from mm-hmm. Southcom. 
and we're going to uh, approve the signal portion of their plants. Mm. And I said, oh, okay. So they come in, and I'm, I'm looking at all these plants, and it's kind of like we've got 13 different armies out there. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> you know, they're, they're all their own. Right. I said, what's their biggest complaint? And they said, uh, that headquarters, DA, Department of the Army, mm-hmm. doesn't have a communications plant. Right. So they're doing, right. yeah, I said, all right. So I carpool with two two uh, lieutenant colonels, uh, and well, actually three, but two of them are in Desops that does all the plants. Mm-hmm. I told them I'm going to write a plan. Mm. That's the biggest fault. They say no, you're not. Mm. And we can stop you. But these are my friends. Right, right. <laughs> and we will stop you. <laughs> And I said, oh, okay. That sounds like friends don't let friends write plans. So I tell my staff, I, I want uh, I, I want a plan. We're not going to call it a plan. Right. I want a plan. in uh, 25 pages or less, that covers everything. And I'm coming back in two weeks. So I came back in two weeks, and they didn't even have the first – they didn't have an outline. And these are all graduate students with worse degrees. Right. That was very popular back then. And uh, majors, captains, mm-hmm. and civilians. So uh, I went in a, a room about this size and uh, started write, writing plans. Right. Uh, two weeks later, I throw it out to them and I said, okay, you can't write it, now grade it. Mm. And uh, they got a few more ideas. But I, uh, I wrote this plan of and I called it planning guidance mm. that's going to go right they're going to try to stop it but right. that's going to go <clears throat> and uh, uh, everybody fell in love with it mm. and it, and the last two pages was what's going what, what's going to happen in computer and uh, communications technology in the next 20 years mm-hmm uh, and uh, I wasn't too far off. Mm. And I said, the, the point here is, is uh, we drive a stake in there, and then every year you move the stake, mm-hmm. you know, and keep mm-hmm. it. So because what, what, what we've built in Silicon Valley now is this and that and this, and every program manager is fighting for his own program, mm-hmm. whether we need it or not anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, we got to do this mm-hmm. well that that got a lot of uh, that was good okay mm-hmm. so I'm going now briefing this plan all, all over uh, to uh, headquarters all, all over mm-hmm. and I'm getting ready to uh, go to uh, Fort Leavenworth and something that doesn't wouldn't happen today but uh, I go up to the to the, the counter to I get my ticket, and uh, she says, you're to call uh, General so-and-so at your headquarters uh, before you leave. Mm. So uh, I call, and they said, well, when are you coming back? And I said, this is Monday. I said, I'll be back Thursday evening, and I'll see you Friday. He says, well, that, that's good, because uh, Monday uh, you're being transferred to uh, the OSD 
uh, PCA, uh, department. I'll, I'll think about that. <laughs> okay. But, but the head of all the strategic plans, right. okay, planning and doing. Right. right. And they run all of the uh, Audubon and all of the uh, fixed equipment stuff. Right. And, and uh, he says, well, I'll tell you why you're going and uh, what they want you to do. So I come back and, and I, I find out that uh, – uh, and I don't know why I was designated for this, but somehow I was mm-hmm. as a single person. They had been, uh, they had the, uh, the uh, department, uh, the DOD telephone mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had, uh, and that was uh, Audubon. Mm-hmm. And then they came up with uh, the digital system that's called Autoden, but that was really teletype operation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was the, the communication mm-hmm. of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they now they wanted to standardize it, and uh, uh, because the packing switching was out and a lot of other new stuff, mm-hmm. and they uh, had in 1976 let this contract. Uh, and I won't name the companies, but mm-hmm. they, some of them still exist, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, build AutoDen 2, mm-hmm. new technology, survivability, uh, security, mm-hmm. uh, digital security, and all those were high uh, orders and uh, and it's time to modernize. Mm-hmm. Well, they'd been spending money for three and a half years and didn't have anything operational. Mm-hmm. And so the services were complaining because they're paying for it and it's out of their budget. And the Navy just quite frankly said, I am not putting in that pot again. Right. And so they had asked uh, DCA <laughs> uh, uh, Communications Agency, uh, Defense Communications Agency. Got it. Uh, to come up with an alternative solution, mm-hmm. and uh, and the uh, uh, D- Secretary of Defense for Communications, Computers, uh, Command and Control, and in, you know, all intelligent operations, mm-hmm. and at uh, the head of the Defense Department uh, said they want and they. Are, are the boss of DCA? Right. They want to see an alternative <clears throat> solution, right? And they they come come back and say says there, this is the best alternative. Mm-hmm. We don't have an alternative. Mm-hmm. So I'm, they, I am sent over there to develop a, a team that will develop in five months a plan mm-hmm. and. They will come up with a plan of how they're going to get well, and those two plans will go through essentially a procurement cycle mm-hmm. or board, mm-hmm. and uh, there will be a winner. But mm-hmm. because they don't necessarily trust mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. happening well, mm-hmm. they tell the, uh, the Defense Science Board mm-hmm. that – that they are also going to evaluate this. Mm-hmm. So let me just make sure yeah. I understand. So you've been hired to come in 
because these different oh, man. Tell me. military units have said, look, we've been paying for some number of years right. to get this communication uh, tools deployed. They're not working. We're not using them. We, we don't have high confidence that we're going to get right. there. We've brought this person in who evidently helped to stop a um, catastrophe in Spain, has built helped solved the GPS. Yeah, and a pretty good reputation. <laughs> <laughs> has solved all these things and is here. He's going to build a, com- a competing plan with this plan, right. and we're going to then evaluate – and hopefully, irons will sharpen iron, and right. we'll have we'll have a clear path on where where do we want to bet our fortune on the thing that's going to solve the problem for us. Is that where we're at? That's where we're at. Okay. So I got to sit and talk to this guy, and it's it's a living he's a living legend. Like yeah. I genuinely, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, he was suggested to me by somebody, and uh, I thought they were kind of you know, pumping up his credentials a little too good to be true. But if anything, they undersold him. I mean, it was fantastic. So I really enjoyed that. And then for me, I guess the last one of these highlights, it really uh, made me think differently. Not just, ooh, that's a cool thing or that's a new idea or whatever, but really think back. And it's also around the idea of uh, systems innovation. And it's this woman, um, Jennifer Wilde, and Jennifer's well. She's in private industry today, um, and we'll have links to everybody where they're at. And she she helps organizations today really think through, in a practical way, how they're going to innovate and bring products to market and what they needed to um, be about. Her background for a significant period of time was in humanitarian crisis and aid, and as she teased out how she believed innovation should help. She talked about her experience in Haiti during the earthquakes in Thailand during the, you know, after the disaster of the tsunamis, yeah. uh, Syrian refugee camps. And, and as she'd walk through like, like the real impact, the hundred mil, millions and millions of people impacted by these things and how, how do we innovate in a way where we're not just making cheaper, more environmentally friendly cardboard boxes to drop off to some kids in the middle of the Iraqi desert or whatever, or in the Caribbean or, you know, pick a place. <clears throat> but how do we bring, um, she, she would walk through the stories of parents or grandparents that have lost hope for themselves in a normal life because they're caught in this cycle of uh, very little place for you to go, very little opportunity for you to leave wherever they were at, sort of trapped. Um, there's so much tension around immigration, some justified, but uh, but whether that's your perspective or not, there's a lot of tension in Europe, in the States, and other places. How do we absorb people uh, and give them opportunity and for these parents and grandparents, how do I educate my kids? How do I, how do I help them get the best life possible? And so we have to change in a way that we hadn't really changed the entire system of education. How do I get education to these folks and make them attractive to, uh, you know, nations to receive them in and give them an opportunity? How do I change, um, uh, 
reporting? How do I change uh, healthcare? Like how how do we change entire systems? So not just make it more efficient or more complex or whatever. And it it's a compelling story of hope, but also pretty disturbing. Yeah. Um, and so I loved the conversation. And uh, here, let's listen to a snippet of it. Well, I was in Iraq. Um, I was uh, working with uh, Syrian refugees in Iraq. And I was out in one of the camps. And as, um, as what I was doing there, I was kind of just talking to people. What do you need? What do you hope for? What does your life look like now? Thinking about how we kind of design programs differently, how we support people to get what they actually want um, instead of, you know, it's in, 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 the, in some ways uh, organisations are delivering services. They're saying, okay, here's food, here's water, here's shelter, here's healthcare, um, here's products, as you would call, um, so you can essentially stay alive, you know, <laughs> following a crisis. Um, but really what they're doing is they are supporting the dreams and opportunities of people in the future, right? Like that's, we're supporting well-being and, and, and the future life of people, um, which, is, which is, side note, interesting in that, you know, companies can say, well, I'm just delivering this specific product, but great companies say, well, how am I supporting people to actually do what they want to do emotionally, physically, mentally, et cetera? Um, so when you start to say, okay, what do people want? How do people see their lives? What kind of innovation can we create to not just provide water, but, but provide that in a way or, or, or provide support in a way that's really going to get them to where they want to go? And um, for better or, or worse, often worse, you know, refugees and, and internally displaced people, people who get displaced within their own countries, are often in camps for 10, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And this, these people are smart. You know, they, some of them have phones. They know this. They've done some research. They've talked to people. So I stopped um, and I, I went into this woman's house who invited me in and she sat down and, you know, we had tea. And I said, okay, tell me about your life. Tell me about, tell me about what's going on. And she had two kids who were just about to finish high school. Uh, and she had a husband who um, basically uh, stayed as long as he could and then got out to try and save their home, but that wasn't possible. Um, their immediate family had not, they were all still alive, but obviously they had suffered um, significant losses throughout their family. And she said, I'm here. I'm in this desert camp in Iraq. I'm not in a um, town I can't kind of get access to services. I can't get a job. Um, I was a teacher back in Syria. We had a swimming pool. My husband was a tailor. My kids were going to high school. You know, we were kind of middle class. She spoke English. She spoke French. (laughs) She spoke um, Arabic. And she said, um, you know, my husband is now severely depressed and basically doesn't leave this this shelter we have. Um, I... I've spoken to people, I see that there is a future where, you know, for the next 20 years, me and my husband and my kids are stuck in this desert camp, which, by the way, is kind of, you know, up to, I don't know what it would be in Fahrenheit, you know, 
140, 50 degrees Celsius down, right down to negatives at night. Just a generally not a not the kind of place you want to live. Um, and and we don't have a house anymore. We don't have any savings. There's no opportunities to get jobs. And she looked at me and she said, "I see that my life is basically over. I have no hope for myself or my husband anymore." And, I, and I'm sitting there, you know, just as as you do, saying, "Don't." cry because this is not yours this is not your loss you know and this you know it's, it's so unfair for me to to be able to do that mm. and she said but what I hope for is I just want my kids to get out I just and the only way I see them getting out is being educated so so she said to me how do I get my kids to finish high school and they've got to go to college. They've got to get some kind of something after high school where they can either get into one of the main cities in Iraq or they can get out of Iraq off their own back because they're smart kids um, and they would have gone to university um, back where we lived. And that, that tells you kind of a few things. That tells you from your original question she doesn't have any hope for herself whether you know whether or not that's true whether or not they can they can somehow um they're somehow able to change their lives or not or her husband who who is sitting in this you know room 10 meters by 10 meters and essentially just not leaving day and night and which can cause all kinds of other issues um but i think as many of us especially if we have kids She's like, how do I support my kids? They have a whole life to live. You know, they're, I can't, you know, 16 or 17 or 18. How my, I'm now living to do that. And I think you just, you, in some ways you scale back what you hope for, but your hope is so much greater and it's pinned to these very big things. Um, and then the challenge from my perspective is, I mean, I, anyway I couldn't disagree with her to her life but I couldn't necessarily disagree with her you know if I was in the same position mm-hmm. um would I be thinking the same thing probably you know um probably I would just then? Uh, no I didn't mm. <laughs> and it would, be, it would be it's so much worse once you have kids certainly oh, but, yeah. but but um and and so how do I then, focusing on innovation in the humanitarian sector at that time, um, I started an a initiative which had uh, labs, that uh, innovation labs that looked countrywide across a number of country and then, uh, countries and then some innovation labs in, uh, in globally. And, and so I went back and said, okay, so what what do we do with this? Because this isn't just this woman. We have data that suggests, you know, this education is incredibly important. And while things may not shift in other ways for the next five years, how do we support these kids to, to be able to exit at some point, you know? Um, and, and it's so interesting then when you start to look at, um, at, okay, we could just say, well, we just get them into school, you know, we just... We, and, and there were schools forming and, and teachers like herself creating schools 
um, in the refugee camp, which is great to just get kids back to some normalcy and, and learning. Um, but I mean, not aligned with any curriculum, not kind of <laughs> not towards a kind of future greater outcome. So you could say, okay, we're going to do some post-it notes and we're going to put those on a board and we're going to say, how do we get every single kid in that refugee camp or across Iraq uh, into a school? And that will be an incremental shift up. And that will happen, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, or you can say, what do these kids really need to succeed? Because they could, they could go to school and they could get stuck in this refugee camp for 20 years and perhaps not use their schooling um, to the extent they could or not be able to get out of the refugee camp? What are the trends that exist? And so how do we map this system of education? How do we map the different kind of actors from universities, technologies, activities that the kids undertake, resource flows, government, curriculum, you know, within Iraq, linked to Syria, linked to kind of global education trends, and say there is this huge trend of online education. And, you know, 10 years ago it was slated to be the next big thing, <laughs> 20 years ago maybe even. Right. Um, and, and how do we access that trend which hasn't yet um, moved forward and say, you know, can these, can these um, kids access some kind of free online Stanford education, MIT education, some kind of, you know, yeah, an Australian university. It doesn't need to be the best of the best, but, but how do we get these kids into a place where they're able to learn and excel and have opportunities for the future? And, um, and side note, I mean, interestingly, online education is, is one of the big shifts in the last year with COVID. You know, one of these shifts that, um, uh, wasn't moving forward as as kind of planned, but I think there was a the Economist just came out with some data the other day that said online education, remote education is looking at quadrupling. The market is looking at quadrupling over the next couple of years. So so these big shifts, these these significant trends, can completely change lives in you know in Iraq with these kids who are well educated up to this point um, over to, you know, kids in wherever it might be in the States in, you know, Brooklyn or, or something like that, who don't have the, the, the resources or, you know, access to some of um, some of this education. So yeah, these significant trends where, you know, I've just given you something that really affected me mm-hmm can affect people globally, whatever country they're in, which is what is really exciting to me. And being able to map those systems and look at those actors and, and find out how does that actually support this person um, is incredibly powerful and much more powerful, I think, than saying let's, you know, let's kind of make this really simple and bring this down to the 80-20 and, and just test a couple of things of, of getting kids into a classroom. So yeah. yeah, that's that, you want to be a good human being and compete with that. Yeah. <laughs> it, what also I like, I like about it, you know, uh, her thumb, the thumbnail on there kind of says it all. You know, fail big, right? Like, right. you know, and it goes back to the, the the other one that you were talking about before too. Is you, 
if you're trying to make big sweeping changes, then make big sweeping changes. And if you fail, own it, fix right. it, figure it out. But at least make the start the process, right? Yeah. You know, and and don't be afraid to fail big. Yeah. Well, she's you know she's a data driven uh, mm-hmm. and and. Um, her partner, uh, Dan McClure, they're data-driven people. This right. is not, hey, I'm having a, you know, I'm having a moment, so let's just take a, you know, they're very programmatic. They're very um, detailed and, and thoughtful. It's it's not a, it's it's not just a, an emotional exercise. Right, right. Uh, but it is challenging. And I, and I don't know in all circumstances I'm 100% there, but I love sure. the conversation. But it's – and Professor um, Andrew, same idea was – is we have to think about – for those that are innovators, actual innovators, whether it's a product or service or humanitarian effort, whatever, w- w- there's too many systems that are coming together to do something. It's not just make this one thing. And so um, I love the approach. It was one of the most interesting uh, human flourishing stories I've heard in a long time. And I think she is a remarkable human being. And I'm, I'm glad that I got to meet her and have that conversation. So those are a few uh, for me for the year. But, you know, overall, Derek, it was uh, we had a lot of interesting academics. We had people from yeah. industry. We, we had e-gamers on. We had. Uh, I mean, there's there's no way in this hour long conversation or, or however long this ends up being once we add in our clips, the there's no way that we could detail every single guest that we've had. Yeah, all of them are very compelling in their own right, and they're all great listens. We we just had to to very cherry pick just some of our absolute favorites. Yeah. you know, and they're they're all right up there. Yeah. Yeah, we could mention uh, Professor Chase and sports analytics and um, uh, Dean Bubbly and 5G. And I'm just, I mean, there's so many. I, yeah. I, I'm going to stop naming them. But um, <laughs> so 2022, yeah, uh, right around the corner. Um, what uh, just day is now? What are we going to what are we going to talk about? Well, you know, we've got we've got a lot of really cool stuff planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of stuff that we've already recorded. Yeah. And uh, things about like cybersecurity, uh, maybe some things. Why are you about, going into your whisper voice? Well, just because this is exciting uh. stuff, right? <laughs> exciting stuff. You nerd. I know. So we've got we've got stuff about cybersecurity. We've got stuff about. Uh, See, I when I, the cybersecurity stuff that we've got coming up, um, we've got a great futurist, uh, Azim Azar, mm-hmm. in his book The Exponential Age. I'm hoping to get him back on the show because we didn't get to the cybersecurity part. But as I've talked to some of these cybersecurity gurus, um, Jeremy Hale's one that's going to come mm-hmm. on, and some others, they kind of are scaring the crap out of me. You know, I, know. I um, they're great conversations. Like, well, I, when I, I think of cybersecurity, I, I think of malware, ransomware, um, you know, corporate kind of espionage. But when you think about the impact to shutting down systems like municipalities and other things, we're seeing some of that water or, grids, or, water grids, all of that, are, yeah. Or the weaponization of, you know, tech, mm-hmm. s- s- physical harm, combat drones, all kinds of other stuff. You're like, wait, what? You yeah. know, and and as they tease out what's actually possible and happening, and so we haven't recorded all of those conversations yet, but those are you know on the plate. Yep, um, we've got we've got some cool things talking about uh, uh, magic and Magic the Gathering and and music and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff that we've got in the hopper that. 
I think everyone's going to like to yeah. like to listen to next year. Future of music, music production. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe we can get Mark to come back on and talk more about movies and mm-hmm. what that's like and how. I mean, that's always fascinating to me. I mean, there's just so many things: artificial yeah. intelligence, machine learning. We've got those lined up. The Internet of Things and how that's continues to explode. And we've had a number of those experts on. We've got a few, uh, like I said, if some futures coming on. But how is it? Um, how is how are we responding to it? You know, that's another thing that I'm really interested in. Like, how are how are we? How are systems pushing back? So we've got this brain that's taken, you know, millions of years to evolve. Right. We've got systems that are a few hundred years old, and we've got technology with this, you know, Marvel comic universe superpowers, uh, you know, in our hands. And how do we how do we keep up? And what's the positive and the negative impacts and, of that? And, and not only that, is we've in the time span of our entire entire existence, uh, it's only been a blip that we've had it, right? Yeah, like, just like a the, minute. The, the past the past hundred years or whatever, where all this technology was was being developed until where we are, where we are now, is only like half of a percent of how long we've been on this planet. Yeah, and so it is just like insane to think about like how much it's, it's affected and changed us. Yeah, and I mean it's gonna it, it, this stuff is important and it's really cool to listen to all these people who are who are navigating uh, all of the different pieces of technology. And and how they're using it to innovate in their in their uh, ventures, um, and also just you know ways that that us as the consumer can interact with these these mega corporations or or with one another and and how everything just pieces together yeah. from the palm of our hands yeah right like how cool is that it's cool we're also trying to get like I'm old school I love to. You know, I've I don't do much video or PC gaming anymore. It's very rare. I'm more uh, I know how dare you? How dare I? I'm more of a board gamer or card because I like that. You know, sort of human beings all together. Yeah. You know, uh, attacking each other through cardboard. I love that. Um, but we're we're all also working. Uh, we've got some folks that um, are going to participate with us. You know, one of my favorite things to do is disc golf, and uh, you know the technology behind it. I'm curious, but. Um, you know, just emerging trends in gaming and social things that we enjoy. So it's not necessarily all tech doom and gloom, but how is it changing the arts and um, how is it giving us more opportunities? How is it helping us flourish? What are the what are the things that we're um, um, you know what are the things that we're introducing to our lives to improve our lives? One of the things that I use now is I use a meditation app, and it's amazing how it takes in my particular case it uses um biblical scriptures very simple and allows me to kind of focus my thinking on the things that are important to me i have a lot of friends that aren't particularly people of faith but they are people of meditation and um um uh wellness and and well-being and just kind of um whether it's through yoga or other things and they and they use these things to just really calm themselves and to distill themselves and so how can we bring technology into our lives to simplify our lives because if there's one thing i think we're all certain of it's that in the age that we live in which is an attention age how do i get your attention and how do i keep your attention usually by shocking you or scaring you or right you know something like that and mm-hmm. we see consequences of that through social media that are negative but how, how can we use these things to benefit ourselves or, or, or how do we unplug from them um, in some cases and, and get out and enjoy our lives? How do we make things simple and, and use tech to do that? And, 
You know, I love all those conversations. And those are the big questions, man. Yeah, those and, are the uh, big questions. And hopefully our conversations in 2022 can... Uh, Not hopefully, they will. They will. <laughs> so, hey, everybody, if you've... Uh, th- first, thank you for joining us, um, you know, in uh, 2021. We look forward to you joining us in 2022. We got some good thing, I think, great things planned. Um, hopefully we can execute them. If it doesn't come out looking or sounding good, it's your fault. So. I know. I know. I'm the one to blame. So <laughs> anyway, um, I hope you have a great holiday and we'll see you soon. Uh, like, subscribe, share, and comment. And we'll see you soon on the next QTS experience. Have a good one.